Our Father, we thank you, along with the psalmist who said that you are the Lord God who daily bears our burden. And we are thankful, Lord, that your care and your providence and your provision is daily. It not only is it daily, it's every waking moment and it's every sleeping moment. We all have things in our lives that uh, we would like to be rid of. Uh, and perhaps at a point we will be, but some things are perpetual and some things are just there. Paul had a thorn in the flesh and each of us have some kind of thorn in the flesh that keeps us from exalting ourself and keeps us living in dependence upon you. We, um, we are grateful for our lives in Christ. We are grateful for forgiveness of our sins. We are grateful that you have taken away our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, that you have given us new hearts. We are thankful that when we trusted in Christ as our only source of salvation and forgiveness and renounced our own works and we turned from our sin to him, that we received eternal life at that moment and that can never be lost. We're on our way to another world. We're on our way to eternity and we are simply passing through this. This is interim. It's not final. Uh, as we go through this life, Lord, we have afflictions, we have struggles, we have pressures, we have challenges. And uh, we get weary. That's why the scripture tells us don't become weary in well-doing. We need to just keep on keeping on following Christ. And one of the ways that we do that one of the ways that we are given strength is through your word, which is why we meet here in the middle of the week to open up your Bible and to feed on your word and to go deep. Uh, there's no other source of life. We have nowhere else to go. We have nothing else that will nourish us and, and give us the spiritual vitamins and minerals and nutrients that we need to bear the burdens you have given us and to stay the course. Um, we know the verse, Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If we go too many hours without eating, we, uh, we lose strength, we lose focus, we lose energy. Um, if we go too long without uh, digesting Scripture, the same thing is true spiritually. So we are here tonight to feast on your word so that we might be able to bear the burdens that you have given us for the season that you have given us these burdens. They, they are not designed to uh, discourage us. They are not designed to defeat us. They are designed to actually test our faith and to build our faith and to build our spiritual muscle. So, feed us tonight. 
Give us teachable hearts. Give us teachable spirits. If we have roadblocks up to truth, may your Holy Spirit navigate around them and get into our hearts and minds. Because we need truth. We need to absorb it. We need to apply it. It's the word of Christ which is true. And as Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, uh, and the truth shall make you free. That's what we desire. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have been talking about um, this semester about the trail of life, and by way of review, just to get us warmed up, those guys are still coming in. You never see the word trail in the Bible, but you see the word path all of the time. In Psalm 1611, the psalmist says, you will make known to me the path of life, and we are all on the path of life. We're at different places on the path. Some of us are Young, some of us are teens, some of us in our 20s, others 30s, 40s, then you get 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and anybody here in their 90s? I don't see anybody here in their 90s. Yeah. Where are the guys in their 90s? Yeah, they're dead. And... Uh, and, and that's where we're going. Uh, just, just wanted to encourage you as we start off. <laughs> but that's where we're going, and we all know it. We just don't talk about it, and we think that applies to everyone else but us. We all think we've got a lot of years ahead, especially if you're young. And you probably do, but then again, you may not. You just don't know. As Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed for a man once to die, and then comes judgment. Uh, we have said that the trail of life, uh, you know, if you, if you look in the uh, graveyards, you'll see the headstones, you'll see the name, you'll see the, uh, the two dates separated by a hyphen. Date of birth, that's when you got on the trail. Um, second date is the date of death. Uh, the hyphen is the whole story. We are, we are on the hyphen. The hyphen is the trail. The hyphen is the path of life. No matter where you are on the path of life, no matter what your age, no matter what your age, you're always going to need the same thing on the path. Um, you're going to need wisdom. It's Psalm 90 that says, as for the days of our lives, they contain 70, or if due to strength, 80 years. But soon it is gone, and we fly away. And then it says, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Wherever you are on the path of life, we all need wisdom. Every single one of us. Because we have never been on this particular stretch of trail before. This is new to us. Whatever age you are, whatever age and months and weeks, wherever you are in life, you've never been here before. So you need wisdom. God's wisdom. This trail, God puts us on the trail. He uh, is the one who has determined each man's life. Uh, we, we exist 
The reason we're on the trail of life and the reason we have a life is that he gave us life. Um, Psalm 139, 16, David said, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. If, uh, if you have children, and you remember when your wife was pregnant, you went to the doctor, and they had that, old, that screen. It's kind of old, kind of murky. Um, and they did the jelly on the belly with the magic wand, and then suddenly you see an image on that screen. And there's your little baby in there swimming around. Uh, David said in 139 of Psalms, verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. See, on our headstones, we put date of birth. But God knew you before you were born. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance when you were a sperm and an egg. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book, they were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. So the trail of life that you're on uh, God is sovereign over your entire lifespan. Uh, the reason you're alive is that he willed for you to be conceived. Uh, to, by the way, to Jeremiah, God said, before I formed you, I knew you. So God has known you before you existed, and you will always exist. You will never go out of existence, ever. Now, this is wild stuff, is it not? But it's good to think about this stuff because it's eternal. And we live in a world, you see, we live in a world that says this is the only world there is. If, if you, the more degrees you get and the longer you spend in universities, the more secular information they're going to try and get you to drink, swallow, and consume and believe. So you got to be careful of drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, the educators, the political system, all this, this is the only world that there is. This isn't the only world that there is. When you die, you don't go out of existence. That's where Jesus said in Matthew 7, there are two trails. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. There is a heaven, Jesus said, and there is a hell. Not real popular, but it's what Jesus said. And by the way, Jesus has authority. In fact, he has all authority. All authority because he's God. Which, that's not very popular because we live in a culture where no one wants to submit to authority. And he has a book that he has given to us that is authoritative. So we're reading the book of the one who has all authority on heaven and on earth and who owns it, who created it, who sustains it, and keeps you going on the trail. That's just a little introduction. So you got a context now? We're on the trail. Uh, and, and what we're doing with this whole concept of the trail, we are, we're trying to break it down. Be because you see, uh, this is life. This is the Christian life. And on this trail, sometimes uh, we, we are on the mountaintop, and there are wonderful things, and goals are realized, and we experience just a lot of favor and blessing from God. But at other times, man, you're having a hard time and you're having a struggle, you see? Because this Christian life is hard. There's a harder life, and that's the life that's without Christ. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. But the Christian life is difficult. It's not easy. Um, 
Ecclesiastes 7, consider the work of God, for who can straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. God's all for that. Ah, but in the day of adversity, consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. If all you have is prosperity, if all you have, if all you have uh, is a life where all of your goals are achieved and realized and you have no pain or difficulty or stress, um, you don't have much to offer to anybody because you'll just be uh, spoiled and you'll be a narcissist and you will be self-centered. What the Lord wants to do is when he pulls us to himself and regenerates us and gives us eternal life, we have been born again and we're not, he just doesn't want us to remain born again because when you're born, you're immature. He wants to move us to maturity. So in order to move us to maturity, he is going to take us through some hard things. And one of the things that you will encounter at some point in your life on the trail as you follow Christ is that you will encounter a cave. A cave. And it will be the Spirit of God who is leading you as you follow Christ, the Lord is my shepherd, he leads me, as you're following Christ, you will be led into a cave. Um, there are two cave psalms, and I'd like us to look at them tonight. Um, psalm 142, and then we are going to go over to Psalm 57. Some of you guys have been in the cave and you have come out. Some of you are in the cave and if you're in the cave, you wonder if you will ever get out. If you have not been in the cave, enjoy your time out of the cave. Because at some point, you will probably go into some kind of cave uh, the cave is not a pleasant place. If you look at Psalm 142, David is in the cave. And actually, I tried to remind myself not to go immediately to Psalm 142. And I forgot to do it. That's where we're going, and then Psalm 57. But we want to start in 1 Samuel 22. Because this will explain to us in David's life and in David's biography why it is that he's in the cave in Psalm 142 and in Psalm 57. In Psalm 22, no, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 22, 1 Samuel 22, we read this. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him in this massive cave. He's in the cave. Now, the question is, when he had departed from where? Well, it gives us he had several places that he was in, but you've got to back up, and here's the story. It's in 1 Samuel, but let me just condense it for you. So David, the first, the first king of Israel, is Saul. If anyone ever looked like a leader, it was Saul. 
He was the biggest man in all of Israel. You know, some guys, they walk into a room, and you just, they just sort of take a room over just by their presence. Saul was, was a big guy. He was one of those guys, probably had Hollywood chiseled good looks. He just looked like a leader. Some guys look like leaders. That doesn't mean you are a leader. It just means you look like a leader. And in this day and age, if you look like a leader, you can go a long way. Because they can spin you. They can have you read teleprompters. They can feed stuff to you. They can do all kinds of stuff. And they can make you look like you know what you're doing when you are absolutely clueless. You see. And we see it everywhere. We see it everywhere. It used to be that ugly guys could get elected president of the United States. It used to be guys that really were not likable and had no camera appeal or any, any pizzazz or charisma. They could be elected president of the United States. Can't happen anymore. You see? It just can't happen because it's all about appearance. Now, Saul was the first king of Israel. And if anyone ever looked like a leader and looked like a king, it was Saul. But Saul was what I call a synthetic leader or a counterfeit leader as opposed to an authentic leader. Um, when he was chosen to be king of Israel, uh, he, had a, he, he kind of started, he started pretty well, but he quickly flamed out because he didn't have a heart for God. The thing about the Christian life, the Christian life is all about the heart. Leadership is all about the heart. You see? The difference between an authentic leader and a synthetic leader is is that an authentic leader, biblically, has a heart for God. David was a man after God's own what? Heart. Uh, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the, on the heart. You see? On the inward. Uh, Saul looked like a leader, but he didn't have a heart for God. And think about the... He, if you look at Saul's life, he continually and continually disobeyed, and there was a point in time where the Lord removed the Spirit of God from him, and he began uh, to have these incredible um, mood swings, uh, just got absolutely out of control. And to soothe him, someone heard about David and his music that he played on the harp. So they, you know, someone got a CD or something, and, and what they did was they said, hey, we got to get this guy in here, and they did. And when... Saul would go into these incredible swings and rages. They'd bring David in. It was kind of a part-time gig. You know, they'd bring him in from working his dad's sheep, and he would uh, play that harp, and it would soothe him. Now, here's what was interesting, is that Saul didn't know that God had taken the mantle of authority away from him as king of Israel and put it on David. Uh, the prophet Samuel went to the house of Jesse and told him to bring in his sons, and he brought in seven sons. And Samuel's looking, because God's going to anoint, have him anoint one of those young men as king of Israel. And he's looking at seven sons, and nobody's right. And he says, you have any other boys? Well, David's out there dealing with the sheep. His own father didn't think enough of him to bring him in. They brought him in, Samuel, knew this was the young man, anointed him. Okay, so David's going to be the next king. Notice the difference. David has a heart for God, Saul doesn't. David's doing the part-time gig, playing the harp. 
You guys getting this? You stand with me? Then you got the Goliath thing. There's a day where the army of Israel is out at battle, and his dad says, hey, get a few Subway sandwiches, take them up to your brother, see what's going on. So he goes up there to see him, and he sees this giant Goliath intimidating the armies of the living God and uh, blaspheming God, and David is just livid. What, what, what is going on? Why, what, why aren't you dealing with this? Now, let me ask you something. Goliath was the biggest of the Philistines. Who was the biggest of the Israelites? Saul, who should have gone on and taken Goliath? Saul. Saul. Oh, but Saul didn't do it. Because, see, Saul just looked like a leader. He just looked like he knew what he was doing. But he didn't have a heart for God, and he didn't have a heart for leadership because he didn't have godly character. So he wasn't up to the task, and he wasn't up to the challenge. He was all about self-preservation. But David who had trusted God in private. Nobody knew who David was. He'd already, God had already delivered him when he took on a bear. God had already, it wasn't on the National Geographic channel. God had already delivered him when he took on a lion. He took on a lion to protect the sheep, and God delivered him. So if God helps you fight off a bear and helps you to kill a lion, I can take that sucker by the same God who delivered me from the other two. God develops his men in private in private. Before God promotes, he tests in private. Okay. You know the story. So David steps up, says, I'll take that guy on. Well, here, Saul says, use my armor. David's swimming in his armor. Why? Because David was an average-sized guy. David was M. Saul was double X, L. You see, Saul was the biggest guy, but it's not a matter of physical size. It's a matter of heart and trust in the Lord. Saul says, uh, David says, I don't need that armor. I'll take him on. Boom. Sucker goes down. He takes his sword, cuts off his head. And now there's a new number one song on iTunes in Israel. I don't even know what iTunes is, but I, it's, I've heard it, and I want to be contemporary and with it. But what I want to say, in my heart of heart, there was a new number one song in American Bandstand. And most of you guys are with me on that. And if you're young, Google American Bandstand, and you'll see what I'm talking about. But anyway, here's a new number one song. The new number one song in Israel is, Saul has slain his thousands, David his... Ah, David is tens of thousands. Now you've got a problem, because when an authentic leader shows up, the counterfeit synthetic leader gets threatened because they're going to be exposed by the authentic leader. We've just seen that happen. But it's always been true. Always. It's always been true. So when the synthetic counterfeit leader gets exposed by the authentic leader, two things happen. They get threatened, and they move to destroy the authentic leader. That is exactly what Saul did with David. And that's why in Psalm, in case you thought I was just meandering and wandering and having a nice time with history, that's why David was in the cave in Psalm 142. And that's why 1 Samuel 22 he was departing and going to the cave. In, in 
in 1 Samuel 20. See, he had to flee from, uh, from, from Saul because now Saul is going to kill him. Uh, if you look at 2031 of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 2031, um, uh, for as long as the son of Jesse, which is David, lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send me and bring him to me, for he must surely die. You see, this is a situation where Saul is talking to his son, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan, you should have been king. No, and John, you know what? Jonathan loved David. Jonathan knew that God, that, that, that God wanted David to be king. If you read verse 30, Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? As long as the son of Jesse, David, lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now sin to bring him to me. He must die. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, said, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Now Saul hurls his spirit at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew his father and decided to put David to death. He's so enraged, he tries to kill his own son, who he's concerned that won't have a kingdom, and now he's trying to kill him. The guy's out of his mind. Then Jonathan and David meet in the field. They, they, their friendship, uh, you know, is reestablished. David has to take off in 21. He goes to Ahimelech, the priest, because he needs some food. He gives him the food. One of Saul's spies is there, later tells Saul. Saul sends somebody back in to kill the high priest. That's unbelievable. And then Saul, David is on the run. He has nowhere to go because Saul and his men are after him. So you know what David does? He's so desperate, he runs to the Philistine camp, looking for a refuge, looking for a place where he can be safe from the king of Israel. He, the king of Israel should give him refuge and should encourage him and should nourish him. But he's got to run from the king of Israel and he goes to the king of the Philistines and he's the guy who killed the champion of the Philistines. And that's all in 1 Samuel 21. Um, it, it, it's, it's a crazy story. It really is a crazy story. Uh, 21.10, 1 Samuel. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. That's the Philistines. The servants of Achish said to him, Hey, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, David is tens of thousands? What the heck are you doing letting this guy in here? And then David realized he couldn't stay there. He thought he could build a relationship with this king, and, and, but he couldn't. So, verse 13. So to get out of there alive, he disguised his sanity before them, verse 13, and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and led the saliva run down into his beard. Because he realized they were going to kill him. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why did you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? I got plenty of madmen. I don't need another one. So they let him go. Now we're in 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Okay? We needed to cover a little ground. Now let's go to Psalm 142. Uh, David is in the cave. In fact, he is hemmed in in the cave. It's not where he wants to be. He is hemmed in 
in the cave because he is being, now watch this, he is being harassed and he is being hounded because he is hated and therefore he is being hunted. Let me say that again. He is hemmed in in this cave because he is being harassed by individuals. He is being hounded by individuals. Quite frankly, he is hated by certain individuals. And he's being hunted. Now, there, there are degrees of this. But at some point on the trail, as you follow Christ, don't be surprised if you run into something like this. I've seen it happen in churches. There is actually a... Um, There's a gentleman named Robert Clinton who's done a lot of leadership studies for probably 30, 35, 40 years. Uh, wrote a book called The Making of a Leader. And he talks about the different stages, uh, the process by which God makes a spiritual leader. And it's, it's quite a fascinating book. He, he studies a, a lot of uh, hundreds of leaders from scripture, from church history. Uh, I, I, I have read two thick syllabi, syllabuses, however you want to use the grammar, that this guy has written. It's fascinating stuff out of the Scripture. There seems to be a method by how God develops a man, and in one of the phases of development, there is a trait that happens. There, there is not a trait, but there is, a, um, there is an event that will happen. Uh, one of the, I didn't mean to get into this, but when I was reading his book years and years ago, he said, I, I'm writing this book because I found this pattern. I think it's pretty sound in Scripture on how God develops a man, on how God develops a leader. And I've written it so that you understand there is a pattern. And secondly, I'm writing it so that you might be able to kind of figure out where you are in the scope of things. So I'm reading this book, and then I go back, and I'm reading over it, and I'm trying to figure out where I am. And I'm figuring, I think I'm in this phase. I think that's where I am. I turned the page, and by the way, it was the most stressful time of ministry I've ever had in my entire life. I thought I'd been through a stressful time, and this came along 10 years later. It was the most stressful time. It was the most, um, I'd never been so alone in my life. Um, it's about all I want to say, except this. I'm reading the book, I'm in the chapter, and I said to myself, I think this is where I am. I turned the page, and he said, one of the primary traits that a man is in this phase of ministry is leadership backlash. Is that those that he, those that he has worked with and those that he has trusted and poured his life into him turn on him. I said, hmm, that's me. I can't tell you how much that encouraged me. Two weeks later, I got on a plane with a guy who pastored in another area, and we started talking. It was a long flight, and we started talking. We didn't know each other that well. We started talking. I started telling him about the book, and he started opening up. And uh, lo and behold, I started telling him about this, and I said, you know, 
there's this thing and da da da. And I said, you know, the primary characteristic? Leadership backlash. He said, no. I said, yeah. Yeah. Another term for it is the cave. The cave. You don't have to be in full-time ministry for you to go through this. It, it can, I'll tell you this, you're going to see it in a minute. This can happen in a marriage. Someone you have trusted turns against you or someone that you're married to, uh, you're as alone as you can possibly be because there's no connection. Uh, your motives are questioned. Your uh, decisions are questioned. Um, it happens in the business world. It happens all the time. And see, when this happens to us, it is extremely disturbing. It is just gut-wrenching. And you wonder, Lord, where are you? Okay. Now, I've given more introduction than I intended, so let's get into Psalm 142. Remember, he's hemmed in in the cave. He is harassed. Why is he in the cave? Because he's harassed, he's hounded, he is hated, and he is hunted. Now, Psalm 142. I cry aloud. And, and notice the introduction there, Psalm 142. Uh, a mascal, that's a possibly a contemplative uh, writing or skillful psalm of David. Watch this. When he was in the cave. Do you see that? This is the first. Um, uh, and by the way, if you look at 1 Samuel 22, he's in the cave at Adullam. Uh, right after that, in 23, he's in the caves at En Gedi. So for about 10 years, he's running and hiding from Saul who's trying to kill him. And he's hiding out in these caves. Okay. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. And when it says cry, it means cry. This is a prayer of desperation. This is not a prayer that you just kind of throw out at dinner time. Lord bless this food to the nourishment of our body. This isn't a now I lay me down to sleep prayer. This is a prayer from the gut. This is a prayer of survival. This is a prayer of desperation. Uh, you got to get the emotion that's in this. And we're also going to see it in Psalm 57. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. Or literally, I plead for mercy with my voice to the Lord. He's in trouble. He needs God's mercy. And then he's not done yet. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. And, and may I say, I think there's a great truth here, that when you're feeling stuff as a man inside, let the Lord know. He already knows. Just, just describe it. Just talk to him. You say, I don't have anybody to talk to. Yeah, you do. Tell him about it. He's interested. He already knows. Well, then why should I pray? Jesus said in Matthew 6, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, then the obvious question is, well, then why should I pray? Because prayer is not for God. Prayer is for us. It's how you unload. It's how you keep from breaking down. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. That's everything. Everything means everything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, 
with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, and as you unload it, then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You just give it to him. You see. I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it because of time. But flip over to uh, Psalm 55, 21. The verse says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. See, that's what David is doing in Psalm 142. He's burdened, he's in the cave, he's hounded, he's harassed, he's hunted, people are after him. And by the way, you're going to see in a moment, he's absolutely alone. And he pours out his complaint to the Lord. It's exactly what's in 5522 of Psalms. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. If you have a New American Standard Bible, you'll notice in the margin there's an alternative what I call a rough-hewn translation, it goes like this. Cast what he has given you upon him, and he will sustain you. Because quite frankly, whatever trouble, whatever difficulty that you have, God has permitted, God has allowed, and quite frankly, God has planned. It's part of the trail. Now, you won't always be there, but you're there now, because we grow through suffering. Back to 142 of Psalms. He says, I declare my trouble before him. Now look at verse 3. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me. When you're in the cave, when you're alone, and we'll see that in a moment, when, you're being, when, when people are talking about you, when they are behind your back, when they're saying things, and this is, being, this is what Saul was doing. Things are being said. Accusations are being made. Uh, People are trying to bring David down. They are, they are trying to uh, denigrate him. They're trying to make him ineffective. They're trying to put, paint a scenario about him that isn't true. Not true at all. This happens. This happens. Uh, you will find yourself betrayed at some point. Some of you guys have been betrayed by former wives or by former uh, friends or former uh, fellow employees or bosses or it happens. It's very painful. It makes it very, very difficult to trust anybody, doesn't it? Watch verse 3 of 142. When my spirit was overwhelmed, um, and see, this is what happens. You get overwhelmed. Because when this stuff is happening, it just keeps coming, and it keeps coming in waves, and it's just one wave after another, after another, after another. My gosh, when is this going to end? When is this going to stop? And what it does, it just wears you down, and it overwhelms you. Now watch this. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my what? Path. You knew my way. You knew my trail. See, here's the trail of life. Even when these things happen, see, I'm utterly confused, Lord. I'm on this spot on the trail, and I don't get this, and I don't understand this. Everything has fallen apart. Uh, I, I never saw this coming. Here I am. But see, he, he, he reaches down and gets some truth and says, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. You know where I'm going. 
you've got a plan, and that's true. I can't linger. i got to move. Again, let's break three down. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. Watch this. In the way where I walk. That's the path. They have hidden the trap for me. This isn't going away. They're still, Lord, you know, they, they tried to lay traps, and they got traps in front of me. I'm in this cave. I'm hemmed in. How do I get out of here? Some of you guys are asking that question right now. When is this going to end? This is great stuff. Four. Uh, He's talking to the Lord, and he says, Lord, look to the right and see. For there is, now watch this, there is no one who regards me. Uh, Watch this. There is no escape for me. When you're in the cave, that's how you feel, because you don't see any way out of this thing. And then he says, again, no one cares for my soul. Now you say, wait a minute, he's at the cave at Adulam? Yeah. Well, it says that about 400 guys joined him. Yeah, that's true. But this is before anyone joined him because he's by himself. He makes it very clear. And see, when he says, look to the right and see, uh, James Boyce comments. He says this. David asks God to look to his right, watch this, because it is on his right that he would normally have friends waiting to help him. Honored guests were seated to one's right. Friends and soldiers with high authority were given that position. David had enemies in front, behind, and on his left, but nobody on his right because he was alone. Well, boy says, nobody. I wonder if, if when David penned these lines, he remembered that he had also written in Psalm 16, and then he quotes Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me, watch this, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. That's Psalm 16, 8. See, when you, when all friends forsake you, when you're in a situation by yourself and you are utterly isolated in a cave and former friends, no one, I mean, you're, you're in it by, see, there are times, there are times, I'm convinced, when a man goes one-on-one with the Lord. That's it. In the cave, in the depths. I've had two different chapters in my life where I was in the cave, where basically I was going one on one with the Lord. And I had Mary. I thank God for her. Because she would encourage me when I, I came home one day and I was so discouraged and I was in the midst of that deep depression in my early 30s. And I was in this little, little church with a bunch of old people, sweet people, it, it, I knew I couldn't grow it, and I was very, I, I don't mean to go too much into this, but I was so, I, I was so depressed. I'm goal-oriented. I'm results-oriented. There were no results. They were just sweet people. 
God was teaching me things there that I needed to learn. And he was taking his time. And I couldn't see any progress. And I came home one day. I never did any counseling. There was no one to counsel. If you're 80 years old in a bad marriage, you're just going to buy another TV set. <laughs> and you're sure not coming to some 32-year-old kid to talk to him about marriage, right? So I'd preach on Sunday, one service, and then I'd, there was nothing to do in a week. There was nothing, nothing to do. I'm dead serious. And I get depressed. That's what, okay, I can't, I can't spend too much on this, but... It was a season in my life that was necessary. But man, was it, I, I just, and I remember coming home one day, and I, I had a part-time secretary, and I said, you know, I'm going to go ahead and take off because uh, I was so depressed I couldn't stand to be there. And she said, oh, okay, fine. She loved me. For some reason, God gave me this lady who just thought I was great. And she was on some kind of medication. I don't know what was wrong with her. <laughs> but she said, okay, Steve, see you later, you know, and I went home. I walked in the house about 3.30 in the afternoon. And then I'm trying to hold back tears. And Mary said, what's going on? And I said, said, you're having a hard time, aren't you? I said, yeah. And I'll never forget this. She said, you know, Steve, I know this is hard on you, but this is kind of a good time for us. I said, what? <laughs> she said, no, it's kind of a good time for us. Because the kids are little. Rachel is maybe four, three. John was about a year and a half. She was pregnant with Josh. She said, you don't have a lot of responsibility there. Um, you got good, there's just not, I mean, you're doing what, what they've asked you to do, but there's not a lot you can do. Um, we got a lot of family time. You're with the kids a lot. She said, Steve, there's going to be a time when you're going to be speaking and traveling and doing conferences, and I'm, and I said, hold on. You don't need to go. You don't know that. Don't, don't, Mary, listen. And, and it, really, it really upset me that she would even see, say, say such a thing. Because it was so far off my, what do you, I, I am absolutely unproductive and disqualified. I, what do you mean? Travel and speak and do conference. I mean, I'm done, I'm finished, because that's how I felt in my heart. See, when you're in the cave, that's how you feel. But see, she could see it. And she knew that preparation was taking place. I didn't see preparation. I just saw defeat. I'm just being honest with you. Maybe that's where you are right now. See, God doesn't take a guy through this without planning on using the guy. There's a reason for it. It's always, God's suffering is always purposeful. But he's alone, okay? This is a time where you're lonely, okay? Uh, verse 5. And man, I got to pick it up. You guys still there? Am I boring you? You with me? Okay. Here it is again. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge. Now watch this. He's in this cave. He's hiding out. And see, it seems like this cave is his refuge. The cave isn't his refuge. God's his refuge. You see, God is always your refuge. He is your sovereign defender. He is your sovereign keeper. 
the Lord. Psalm 27, David said, the Lord is the defense of my life. Whom then shall I fear? He's your refuge. They can all come after you. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. He's got a work for you to die. He's got a work for you to do. You can't die till you do it. They may talk about you. They may send emails around about you. They may spread rumors about you. But they can't stop the work that God is going to do in your life and how it will affect others. They can't do it. They just can't do it. It's impossible. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of living. Six, give heed to my cry. Watch this. For I am brought very low. You know what that means? I'm exhausted dealing with this stuff. I am exhausted. I am fatigued. I am completely out of energy. And that's what this stuff does to you. When you're hounded, when you're harassed, when you're hated, when you're hunted, the emotional, you're just out of gas. You can't wait to go to bed, and you go to bed, you can't sleep, and then it's time to get up, and you don't want to get up. It's no fun, is it? I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors or my pursuers. See, they're pursuing him. Watch this. For they are too strong for me. And they are because you're outnumbered. They're too strong for me. <laughs> oh, man. I wish I had more than 10 minutes. Verse 7, bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. Now, watch this. Watch this. He reaches down and pulls out truth. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. That's a declaration. That's a statement. I'm in deep trouble here. He knows it. They're all after him, hunted, harassed, the whole thing. And what does he say? How does he end the psalm? The righteous will surround. He's surrounded by enemies. But the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Why? God had given him promise that he would be on the throne. It hadn't happened yet, and it had to happen. He didn't know how, he didn't know when, but it had to happen. Now go to Psalm 57. See, we read these psalms, we kind of fly through them, and it looks like, oh, yeah, you read it real fast and go on. You see all the stuff that's in here? It's amazing stuff, isn't it? It's incredible. Psalm 57. Once again, you read the uh, introduction, uh, a mictum of David, uh, when he fled from Saul, here we go, in the cave. That could mean an atonement psalm. The meaning is not quite clear. But it's when he, uh, uh, the choir director set to uh, Al-Tash-Heth, if you have a New American Standard Bible, which means do not destroy. Uh, that is, and then you have a mictum of David, a, a worship psalm when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now watch this, and I, I don't have time to do this whole psalm, except I want you to know this. He's still in the cave, only this is a psalm where he's got his wheels under him, and he's thinking straight. Um, if I were to break this psalm down, verses 1 through 5, you're going to see a bedrock confidence amidst demoralizing danger. He's still in danger, but he's got bedrock confidence. You'll see it in a minute. And then from uh, 
6 to 11, you're going to see assurance of victory, of victory amidst overwhelming odds. He knows God's going to bring him out. He knows it. Okay, now watch this. Be gracious to me, be gracious to me, for my soul, well, here it is, takes refuge in you. What's his refuge, the cave? No, God's my refuge. I, underneath are the everlasting arms. As, as a hen, we'll, we'll take those little chicks and get them under the wings. That's what the Lord does for us. Okay. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take, there it is again, refuge until destruction passes by. In other words, you're going to protect me until this thing passes in my life. You're going to get me through this. Now watch this. Verse 2 and part of 3. I will cry to God most high. Once again, it's what he did in the other psalm. I will cry. I'm desperate. I will cry to God most high. Watch this. To God who accomplishes all things for me. New American Standard says. English Standard Version, I believe, says, I will cry to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. One of the old Puritan pastors translated it this way. I will cry to God most high, to God who is the transactor of all my affairs. I love that. You just talk to my God. Oh, you heard this rumor about me? You just talk to Jesus. He knows. Let me tell you something. They can say this, they can do this, they can email this, they can all get together, they can do whatever they want to do, but Jesus knows. He knows. Doesn't he? You say, I'm being falsely accused. Well, Jesus was falsely accused. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. Because my work's not done yet. You say, well, Steve, well, wait a minute. What, what, if, what if this didn't work out and what if he got killed? The only reason he could get killed is if it was his appointed time. You can't die until it's your appointed time. Hebrews 9, it's appointed for a man once to die. You can't. It's not in the hands of man. It's in the hands of God because God's sovereign. Your life is in his hands. Psalm 31, as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say that you are my God. My times are in your hands. Nobody else's hands. Oh, and by the way, if you do get killed, what's just happened? He saved you. They just did you a favor. Right? If you got a biblical perspective. I mean, really, come on. You think someone, you think these Coptic Christians, these Christians in the Middle East who are being crucified, terrible way to die, that are being beheaded, terrible way to die, oh, they died. You think they'd want to come back? Oh, their life was shortened. They've got life. They got life. It's all perspective. Anybody got a pistol? <laughs> Just to shoot that clock. I'll do this fast. Um, go to Isaiah 35, please. Isaiah 35. 
and then go to, um, yeah, 35. Let me just give you this verse, 3 and 4. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. This is what happens to you in the cave. When you're being hounded and harassed and hunted and you're hemmed in and you're alone, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. There it is again. He'll save you. Jesus just keeps on saving. You've got in Isaiah 36, you've got an account in Isaiah 36, the next chapter. King Hezekiah, what happens is the king of Assyria comes against him. And the king of Assyria, Assyria was the superpower. They were bloodthirsty. I mean, they were... They were right at the top with, with just um, demonic, demonic men in battle and in intimidation. And they would be right up there with ISIS only on a major league level. When they would come into a city and take a city, they would take the leaders and they would kill them and they would take their skulls and pile them up in pyramids at the city gates of the great men. The great men, all their skulls. There'd be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. That's what you would see when you would enter the city. It was designed to intimidate. And in, in verse 2, the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh, which was probably an official. It's a title of, a, of an official. From Lachish to Jerusalem, the king Hezekiah. And he sent him with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. And then he speaks to Eliakim and Shebna the scribe and Joah, uh, the son of Asaph, the recorder, they come out to him. And then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah the king, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? He's intimidated them. And, and he's, he's going to take the city. He says, now on whom, this is, this is classic, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Because I am great. And this guy is a threat because they can't, of their own, they don't have the resources to take this guy. Okay. Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt. And, and, and Israel, uh, Judah had a tendency to rely on Egypt for help as an alliance, okay? Uh, but verse 7, he says, But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And actually he was wrong on that. Because the high places he took away were altars to idols, and this guy's confused, but he's trying to intimidate. Now, therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. You've got to understand, these were the most intimidating people in all of the world. And everybody else was bargaining and making deals with them, and you know, okay. Now, therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. And he keeps coming on and say, uh, you know, have I now come up, verse 10, without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. This sucker's asking for it because God didn't send him. 
Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joad said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Don't speak with us in Judean in the hearing of all the people. We don't want all the people to understand what you're saying. Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? He's just going to intimidate everybody into submission. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Make your peace with me, 16, and come out to me. We'll provide for you. 18, beware that Hezekiah the king does not mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his hand from the hand of the king of Assyria? Yeah, but listen, big shot, you've never run into the one true God. And he's going to find that out. 37.1, when Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Listen, there's no escape from this guy. There's no way out. Verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord. Do not be afraid because of the word that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Now watch this. Behold, I have put a spirit in him, Rabshakeh, that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Do you remember in Psalm 57 too, it says, and I will, I will cry to God, watch this, most high. See, Rabshakeh is high. The king of Assyria is high. These different people, Saul was high. People that intimidate us, people that threaten us, people that come after us, they may be in positions of authority. They may have a certain amount of power. They may have influence. They may be higher than you. But who is your God? I cry to God most high. So what does God do? I'll put a spirit in him. Because I own that guy's heart. I own every human heart. I own every leader's heart. I own the whole world. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water. In the hands of the Lord, he turns it whatever way he wishes. So a friend called me this week. Hey, Steve, you remember that uh, threat of investigation that came along two years ago and we thought it was gone? It's back. Got three calls today. It's back. It's a trumped-up charge. There's nothing to it. I can't give you any details, except they're innocent, and here it comes. It's, it's a cave, absolute cave. And that's where some of you guys are. Man, these, power, these people, the decision's going to be made. They got power. They don't have any power over you. God has all power. You belong to Christ. He runs them. He owns them. He is sovereign over them. I will put a spirit in him. He'll hear a rumor. He's going to return, and he's going to get killed, and that's exactly what happened. Because our God is most high. He's the defense of my life. 
Are you in the cave? Let him bring you out. Let him defend you. Let him make a way. It's what he does. Jesus is a savior. And as Ephesians 2 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. That construction there is a participle. By grace you have been saved. And the way that participle is put together, it means by grace you have been saved with continuing results. You know what that means? Yes, he saved you when you called upon his name and you were forgiven of your sin, but he keeps on saving. He's always there to save. He's always there to deliver. In any and every situation of life, that's our God. Let's pray. Thank you for the truth, our Father. There are men in the cave that are in this room. Encourage them. Let them know you're with them. The eye of the Lord is on those who hope for his loving kindness, and they'll see it. Deliver them at the right time. Give them teachable hearts to learn the lessons of the cave and bring them out better men equipped for what you have next on the trail. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.